Michael, are you celebrating anything special today? Only another Saturday here with you and our listeners. That sounds like a very fine reason to enjoy the latest release from Veuve Clicquot. Its new vintage, La Grande Dame 2012, is delicious and it looks as good as it tastes. Thanks to the iconic Japanese artist, Yayoi Kusama, who created original artwork for the bottle. Kusama's vibrant and cheerful design is an homage to the Grande Dame of Champagne, Madame Clicquot, who took over the production of Maison Clicquot Champagne back in 1805 after her husband died. It's a beautiful way to celebrate any and every occasion. La Grande Dame 2012, the newest vintage from Veuve Clicquot. Mayday, Mayday. It is May 1st, 2021, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail. I'm Michael Haney, a deputy editor here at Airmail. Welcome to May, Ashley. At long last, Michael. Life is looking up. It is looking up. Is is May 1 the day you do the Maypole dance? I think so. I don't have any plans to engage in that activity this year. Do you? I thought only like women who go to the Seven Sisters colleges can do that. I don't know it's really for men, but anyway, it's May. Are you trying to goad me with that statement? No, I'm just just kind of like working from my adult mind of what I know about Maypole dances. I definitely don't remember that from my days at a Seven Sisters College, but uh, I'm like, it's in Sweden, right? Yeah, Sweden or the Nordic countries, which I thought I saw in some new poll. Best quality of life is always in the Nordic countries. Copenhagen, for sure. Finland and places like that. Mm -hmm. But they claim they don't have a secret to it, but I don't know. Are you going to Norway this summer? I'm hoping. I'm, you know, I was planning to last summer cause for my to celebrate my 10th wedding anniversary. We survived a decade. I don't know. We'll see. And, you know, the Scandinavian countries are among the more cautious in Europe. But the big news this week, of course, is that at least in our universe, Michael, we could talk about the climate accord and Biden's big plans and all the rest. But let's just be real. In our world, the big news, Europe is open for business this summer to vaccinated yeah, if you've got your vaccine card, they're ready and willing and able, right? Which is good news. But I know that you were confessing to me yesterday on our Zoom call that you've already been trying to book and you're finding things booked up already, right? Yeah, I mean, it was a little bit personal and a little bit professional, but I have been looking a around. A little bit of research, a little bit of research. Just a touch of research. I mean, look, we're big proponents of travel here, Shay Airmail, and I had to do, start looking into this a bit. And it turns out that a lot of the hotels are predictably booking up for the summer, especially among weekends in July and August. So this is something that we are covering religiously in airmail, but I'd recommend anyone who's sort of pondering a vacation at this point should probably get on it. Uh, Ashley, you know who doesn't have to worry about booking a place this summer? Who? George Clooney, as you reported exclusively in this week's edition of airmail. So tell us about it. Tell us what you and your spies in the south of France have discovered about uh, George and Amal. Oh, Michael, this is the kind of hard-hitting, breaking news journalism I live for. George Clooney has purchased a winemaking estate in the south of France that is, funnily enough, just a stone's throw from Chateau Miraval, which is certainly the home and winemaking estate of Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. How convenient. 
How convenient. I just feel like Casa Amigos, uh, Tequila, and Casa Mirival, uh, Chateau Mirival. But yeah, I mean, look, they're they're all set for the summer. They're, they're just going to set up there and, and be, be fine, right? Well, the great irony here is that in the No Italians have been complaining forever that George Clooney and his Hollywood scene have ruined the tranquility of Lake Como. And now, of course, the Clooney family is coming for the south of France. They have purchased a beautiful estate called Canadel. Our spies in the south of France have called it, quote, one of the most elegant houses ever. And it sits on 420 acres of farmland. And at the moment, only 20 of them are planted with vines, Michael. So there's a huge opportunity here. I can already see the George Clooney brand of wine. I can't wait to taste it. Yeah. And, and you know, he's also, as you, I think, point out in the piece, he's buying the dip in the market, right? I mean, the the economic situation of last year with the pandemic and uh, the tariffs on, on wine, French wine, uh, a number of chateaus have gone up for sale, right? Right. Um, as much as 40% off the peak prices, in fact. Right now, there are about 1,500 chateaux for sale in the country. And this is about twice the amount that were available for sale a decade ago. So it's a great time, Michael, if you're in the market to just throw a lot of money at an ancient house. <laughs> Call your contractor. Uh, bring your contractor. Yeah, exactly. Everybody be a contractor, Michael. It's like we've already you're in Provence. We know how difficult it can be, you know, to get a toilet fixed there, much less uh, renovate a house. So I'm not going to be in the market for these bargain basement chateaus. And perhaps this is why. There are so many people that are avoiding them entirely. But um, yeah, it's a good time for Clooney. And this is really supposed to be a gorgeous home. I hope we're invited at some point, perhaps, maybe. Maybe, probably not. Okay, fine. But whatever. Yeah, but it's a really beautiful spot. And uh, who knows, you might see George and Amal hanging out at Hotel Ducap for lunch. Where are you going this summer? Hmm. Portugal on the mind. I like. And also Sicily on the mind. Ooh. You know, I'm so... The choices are so dizzying, I don't even know where to start. Normally, I have like a well-honed list of destinations. But this year, I don't want to go somewhere new. Usually, I want to go somewhere new. This year, I want to go to see old favorites and new favorites. Like Theoretically, I could be on the road for the entire summer. But there's this thing called work that we still have to do. So anyway. There's this thing called work from anywhere now. Yeah, it's just kind of a bummer to be taking those... 11.30 11.30 Zoom calls right in the middle of aperitivo hour. You know what I mean? So staying in the staying in the general time zone is probably the advisable move. But who knows? This is actually probably the summer to get out there and see the world a little bit because theoretically, we may be back in the office in September, right? Maybe? Unbelievable that it's been a year and a half without it. Banish the thought. I want to see you. I want to sit, sit next to you and eat our turkey chili again and just have a lovely lovely old time in which we get probably a quarter of the work done that we get at home. But um, we have eight times as much fun. So the math works out. Yes. And we can do our eye rolls in person rather than over texts in the middle of the day. (laughs) I love it. Okay, Michael, on a travel note, we have a great piece this week from Alec Lebrano, one of our food and travel writers based in Paris. Now, Alec lives a better life than most of us. Okay, probably than all of us. And this week, he writes about a new hotel suite in his adopted hometown. The Lutetia Hotel is a grand dame of the left bank. It's located right across from one of my favorite shopping destinations, the Bon Marché. And it's a historic hotel. It was built in 1910. But they embarked on a massive renovation in 2018. And the space is completely refreshed and it's quite gorgeous. And most recently, the hotel has enlisted none other than Isabelle Huppert 
to design one of the most grand suites in all of Paris at the Lutetia. So you walk into the suite Isabelle Huppert and you see the black silk chiffon Yves Saint Laurent couture dress that she wore to the Césars on a dressmaker's form. It's right there. Then there's also the entire room smells like her perfume. Jasmine, tuberose, musk, sandalwood. Um, This, of course, is Fracas by Robert Piquet. And she picked out all the furniture. There's an incredible terrace overlooking the Rive Gauche. You can see Les Invalides in the glass vaults of the Grand Palais. She has even curated the library, Michael. And she's got Herzog by Saul Bellow in there, poetry from A.O. Barnabuth, and several of her own framed photographs. Alec writes, this is all well and good, but you do kind of feel like you're trespassing because Huppert is so present there that you sort of expect her to walk out of the bathroom in a terry cloth robe. Okay, so between her suite and the Choupet suite, which was Karl Lagerfeld's cat at the Creone, would you rather stay in her suite or Choupet's suite? I'm a much bigger fan of Isabelle Huppert than I am of cats. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I think Choupet's is pretty small because cats don't need that much room. <laughs> I'll take the Grand Terrace overlooking the Rive Gauche. Exactly. Michael, what else do we have in the issue this week? Did you work on anything at all of interest? No. Well, speaking of places to stay with questionable lineages and interesting kind of like comings and goings, Soho House. Can we talk about that for a second? Oh, we can always talk about Soho House. Soho House, which came on the scene, you know, started in London and then was kind of rolled out over the past decade and a half or so across the world where they've got, you know, uh, club houses uh, everywhere from, I think, uh, from Tel Aviv to Rome to Paris to New York and since they opened in London in 1995. And they've now expanded to, I think, they claim 110,000 members across 27 locations in 10 countries. But the but now they're, they're looking to launch an IPO, right? And raise anywhere from three to four billion dollars. It's quite an interesting little business they're trying to set up, right? Are you a member? I'm not cool enough to be a member. Are you? I think you might be too cool to be a member. Just <laughs> kidding. Well, what do you get for a membership? You get you pay $2,100 a year, 3200 if you want access around the world to all clubs, right? It's actually pretty low compared to like your average country club. But anyway, moving on. Yeah. I don't know, Michael. I mean, look, I work in fashion, so I have spent probably more time than is advisable in the Soho house. And Are you a member? I'm certainly not a member, Michael, no. But I've been invited there for many lunches, many dinners, even, I hate to tell you this, I have spent some time around the pool of the Soho House in New York. Now, I know that that thing is romanticized on Sex and the City, but I wouldn't step foot in that thing. Like, I don't know what goes on in that pool, but it, to me, I just prefer like something that's a little, I, you know, I'll just, I'll just leave it at that, Michael. Now, that pool is kind of like, uh, you know, in New York, we talk about street meat, the dirty hot dogs that you buy in the street and, uh, you know, in Midtown. And, you know, they, they're soaking in that pool of warm, fetid, water. That's what I, I think this, I think the Soho house pool is basically that water collected every night and poured into the pool. Oh, so wrong. So wrong. Yeah. It's kind of, but you know, it's, it's one of these places it has this hold on people's minds as you know, what access and, you know, Ron Burkle, you know, the American billionaire 
investor bought, I, th- I think, a $350 million stake in the place about 10 years ago. He now owns 60% of the company. So they, you know, they've got this IPO they want to launch. But of course, it's like, it's all things Soho House. It's like, we're launching it, but we're not launching it. You know, it's sort of, everything's always vague, you know, this. So, uh, you know, this it's subtle, but it's not subtle. So it's going to be interesting to see the, what the company will be valued at when this shares hit the New York Stock Exchange. You know, I'm not really remotely interested in their clubs per se, but the hotel factor of Soho House is kind of appealing. So I stayed at the Ned in London probably a few years ago, maybe. (laughs) No, not the Ned Brown. The Ned Hotel, which is a Soho House owned hotel. And it's in the city of London, which is not a super desirable place to stay. But I was there for a friend's birthday and he organized a block of rooms there. And let me tell you, Michael... I loved this hotel because the so the very Soho housiness of it is what made it so appealing to me. I was flying in from New York for a weekend and everything was just very ready-made. So, you know, I landed at Heathrow, took the train in, check into the hotel, immediately go to a spin class, which I'm convinced that that's the key to beating jet lag, by the way, is exercising the minute that you get anywhere. Had a juice, you know, everything. It just kind of felt like a tiny little slice of New York City in the middle of London. So I did kind of love that place. Now I really want to go to Soho Farmhouse because it seems like everyone we know in the UK has been talking about it. Maybe it's overrated. DM me on Instagram and tell me what you think of it. But um, I really, uh, I'm curious about this place. Hmm, Okay. Anyway, so Michael, I guess this is all to say, maybe we should think about joining. I don't know. Probably not the time. I don't think I'm going to be allowed to join now that I've said that their pool water is dirty dog water. Honey, if they're IPOing, they'll take whomever they can get. You're all set. All right, Michael, when in London, let's talk about what's happening. Shay David Cameron, shall we? You mean the former prime minister who basically authorized the vote for Brexit thinking there was no way it's going to pass. And of course it did. And now we live in a different world. Oops. Oops. There goes the legacy. Hate Hate when that happens. David Cameron left office in July 2016. He resigned outside of 10 Downing Street. He was only 49 years old. He had his whole life ahead of him. And hilariously, his microphone picked picked up the sound of him humming a little tune. Do-do-do-do. And it was kind of a funny, as Patrick Kidd writes in The Issue this week, it was an amiable Winnie the Pooh sort of titty palm, the noise that indicated a man at ease with his decision. But it's been a little more complicated since he did leave office. He spent the past five years trying to figure things out. As we mentioned, he's only 49. That makes him the youngest PM to leave office since Archibald Primrose in 1895. So he still wanted to be considered a player. So at first he did, you know, the usual things. Some directorships, worked with some charities. He signed on with the speaker's agency. He got an advance of $1.1 million for his book, which was about less than a fifth of what Tony Blair earned for his. And that could have annoyed him, perhaps. Then his former deputy, Nick Clegg, was earning $655,000 a year with Facebook. Crazily enough, that does not count options. And that his chancellor, George Osborne, was getting paid about $900,000 a year for advising BlackRock one day a week. Luckily, though, Cameron's pockets were not going to be empty forever. And in August of 2018, he took a role as an advisor to Greensill Capital, which is a supply chain finance firm owned by Lex Greensill, who's an Australian businessman. Um, his compensation was rumored to be about $80 million, which is crazy. Now, that's all academic right now because Greensill went bankrupt in March of 2021, but only after Cameron had done everything possible to keep it afloat. And now his activity with Greensill is under a fair amount of scrutiny. Well, his, his as you say, doing, quote, everything possible, 
able to keep it afloat. That's where it kind of got into the gray areas, right? Which was maybe leaning on relationships and access to current and former government officials who who might look fa- more favorably upon uh, a, a company that was kind of imploding, right? Yes. So as the pandemic started spreading, Cameron started lobbying furiously, emailing officials at the Bank of England and asking them to meet Greensill because he was hoping that that would generate some support for the company's lending operations. Then he texted Rishi Sunak, the chancellor of the Exchequer, and government officials begging for Greensill to be included in the government loan program that was aimed at keeping businesses afloat during the pandemic. And he gets desperate, and these texts and communiques have all been brought to light. And, you know, Cameron insists that he didn't break any rules, but he should have gone through formal channels. Again, oops. And Boris Johnson, of course, is delighting in this situation because... Johnson and Cameron have had a rather difficult and again, complicated relationship for 40 years. They knew each other at Eton and Oxford, and they were members of the Bullingdon Drinking Society. They were elected to parliament in the same year, but Cameron's star ascended and Johnson walked away to serve two terms as the mayor of London. So Johnson has plenty of problems of his own, but he is delighting in this takedown of David Cameron and it's now rumored that the leaks of all of these Cameron communiques are attributed to Dominic Cummings, who is the former chief advisor to Johnson and, of course, the lead architect of the Brexit campaign. Uh, You've just done an amazing job recounting this, and it makes American political intrigue seem so boring and so, like, kind of unrefined, right? It's no wonder House of Cards originated in the UK, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Let's take a break for a brief lesson in the history of champagne. Michael, what can you tell me about Madame Clicquot? Funny you should ask. She was one of the original innovators in the realm of champagne. All the way back in 1805, she took the reins of Maison Clicquot following the death of her husband. She was a risk taker and completely uncompromising when it came to maintaining the highest possible quality of her wines. She was also known for perfecting new innovations and expanding Veuve Clicquot's reach into all corners of the world. Today, her name is synonymous with excellence, and she is remembered as the Grand Dame of Champagne. And like Madame Clicquot, Yoyoy Kusama is a trailblazer in her field. She entered the art world at 28 and once said, I promised myself that I would conquer New York and make my name in the world with my passion for the arts and my creative energy. To celebrate the house's new vintage, La Grande Dame 2012, Kusama created a new design for its bottle and gift box that makes smart use of her polka dots to represent champagne bubbles. And as for the wine itself? It expresses Veuve Clicquot's love of Pinot Noir, which represents over 90% of the blend. As Madame Clicquot said, our black grapes give the finest white wines. It tastes as beautiful as it looks. La Grande Dame is a showcase of the house's excellence. Madame Clicquot and Yoyo Kusama lived 150 years apart, but they still created an unforgettable collaboration. That alone is worthy of a celebration. All right, Michael. Well, we have a very dishy view from here this week, penned by none other than our co-editor, Alessandra Stanley. And she is here to tell us all about the woke revolution that's happening in New York City private schools. Hello. And a solution for it. Oh, even better. (laughs) So as you know, as everyone listening must know, the private schools in New York have gone haywire because of the woke curriculum. And what they're really trying to do is to take, introduce very, very sheltered, privileged children to the way other people live, rather than go to these incredibly convoluted efforts to have special training and simulations. Why not just 
put them in public school and then they can find out how the other half live. Are you suggesting a permanent relocation to public schools or do you think this is just like a semester abroad type of experience? Okay, so no, no, my idea, actually some Caitlin Flanagan in the Atlantic had suggested you just abolish private schools altogether. That seems unrealistic. So no, the idea is instead of going to Peru or Italy for a semester, you trade places and you go to a high school in the Bronx. And, you know, that kid has, you know, all will have all the advantages of private coding tutoring and chamber music and, you know, girls from Nightingale or Chapin will learn how to take a bus. If Okay, the idea is, you know, instead of having to concoct this Rube Goldberg recreation of how the other half live, just go spend some time with the other half and find out how they live. Right, and maybe go to a, uh, maybe the kid from Brearley or Chapin ends up going to a public school up in the Bronx for a year. Yeah. And, um, you learn what it's like when a teacher doesn't care who your parents are. Exactly. Or as you, exactly. Yes. Or as you say, actually, have to like, you know, take the subway to, to school every day and uh, not get dropped off by your, your nanny, right? Right. And, you know, this way your parents don't have to write your papers for you because teachers don't care. Exactly. But can we just pull back for a second? Because many of our listeners and readers do know the kind of warfare that's broken out here in New York City among the point zero one percenters of the children of the point zero one percenters, right? Which is in these schools kind of demanding what you refer to in the piece as DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion training, right? And critical race theory and these parents pulling their kids out of school because they feel they're they're being sort of indoctrinated. <laughs> My favorite irate parent who pulled his kid out of school didn't say, okay, I'm going to put my child in, in in public school in New York. We're going to move to Florida. I'm going to save on taxes. You can go to public school in Palm Beach. It'll be fine. You know, so you have to take it with a grain of salt. Uh, I just want to point out also that there are 58,000 or so kids in New York City in private schools. And they've been in session because they have the resources uh, to keep the schools clean and safe during the pandemic. Meanwhile, there's more than a million or almost a million kids in the New York City public school system, which, you know, because they are underfunded and under-resourced, they have not been in session by, by and large during the past year. So all this drama is really involving, you know, really the point zero one percent of school kids in New York City. The reason these parents are so insanely enraged and furious is because they're realizing that privilege, money, and connections which used to be the currency, is now, you know, not that great. It's, it's been devalued. The, uh, the whole point of, pre- of private school was that you were allowed to neglect your children. You know, somebody else was going to take care of their education, and that was that. And now, instead, they've just ke- they're keeping your children infantilized until well into college so that, you know, people are, children, students, have their parents fight all their battles for them, you know, even about the curriculum. I mean, if the kids don't like the curriculum, you know, they should, they should argue with shouldn't be the parents. Uh, it's just, uh, we've, we've infantilized these kids for too long. Time to grow up. The schools and society wants these kids to understand how society works better. So let them learn it. You know, don't create these artificial ways of, of telling them about it without actually exposing them to it or expecting them to actually see what it's like. So that was my theory. I mean, why not just abolish private schools altogether, frankly? There are some, as you know, that argue that there is no reason to have private schools and the fact that we have them is just bad for everyone. Well, I agree with that entirely. But um, unfortunately, I think that's unrealistic at the moment. So this is my, because we're all about compromise at Ariel, this is my compromise. 
<laughs> okay, Michael, on that note, Alessandra, we will let you go back to theorizing and solving the great problems of the world. Thank you so much for joining us. So yes, thank you. I, this is fun. Michael, this is a perfect segue into recommended, shall we? Go for it. Okay. Ladies who lunch in New York City have long been going to BG at Bergdorf Goodman for lunch, which is the restaurant on the seventh floor of the story department store with next level views of Central Park. Also, the Cobb salad is pretty good. They have recently opened an outdoor dining situation on the corner of 58th Street and 5th Avenue. Now, Michael, I was laughing about this because I'm thinking who wants to go eat in the bus lane on Fifth Avenue because that's one of the busiest intersections in New York City. But it turns out it looks quite gorgeous. So I went there to eat with Alessandra and Lily. It was raining. So we had to go do indoor dining, get ready on the seventh floor in the original location of BG. And it was marvelous. This place was packed. I could not believe how many people were there. And we got another sign that New York City is back to life. The ladies are out lunching and they are shopping. Good for all of us. Mm, that's good. You're like, you over my dead body will I do indoor dining. But I know one day I'll get you in there. Yeah, I did indoor dining this week, but it was courtesy of 11 Madison Park. What? Yeah. You went to EMP without me? I didn't go there. They came to... Tell me more. They are now doing a meals delivered to your home. And we, we got it on Friday night. It was unbelievable. It was four courses topped off with a strawberry shortcake that looked as good as a strawberry shortcake good humor bar that I remember from my childhood, but tasted 48,000 times better. It began with snow peas and snowshoot salad and then a little steak and another bib salad and a Bernays sauce. It was unbelievable. And the best part of it all, they donate a significant portion of your fee to a uh, basically meals for homeless people. But yeah, in, in, in absence of that, I think Daniel Hume has now figured out a great way to bring four-star dining to your home. Michael, I'm glad you're enjoying four-star dining at your home. I no longer want to dine at my home ever again. So I will see you at 11 in Madison Park, the restaurant. Okay. Well, we'll put that on our list, dear. Michael, I'm probably late to this, Michael, but I did finally see another round, which is the Danish dramedy from director Thomas Vinterberg that won the Oscar for Best Foreign Film. Now, this is about four school teachers and friends who live in a charming little Danish uh, town or suburb of Copenhagen. I'm not totally sure, but they read a study by a sort of lesser known psychologist that suggests that one's blood alcohol level is artificially low. And so in order for us to be at our optimum humans, we should be, you know, enjoying one to two drinks in us at all times. So these guys embark on an experiment. The results are mixed. Uh, I'll leave it at that, but it's a really wonderful film. And it turns out Leonardo DiCaprio's production company has secured the rights to remake it in English uh, with DiCaprio in the starring role. So it, I, can't imagine how you could improve upon this Danish version, but it's really worth seeing. DiCaprio on the rocks. Ooh, good. Do you have anything you can recommend to me? Well, the the loose connecting line is drinking, but it's in a different direction. And it's a film that came out in 1982. One of my favorites, and Brooke had never seen it, so we watched it this weekend. Have you ever seen The Verdict with Paul Newman? No, I'm a neophyte. Okay. All right. The Verdict with Paul Newman, uh, directed by Sidney Lumet, with a screenplay by David Mamet, also co-starring Charlotte Rampling, Jack Warden, and one of my favorite actors ever, James Mason. In it, Newman plays this 
dissolute Boston lawyer named Frank Galvin, who's down on his luck. You learn kind of why that had happened. He'd had some sort of tragedies in his past. And he gets hired to try a case by uh, a man and woman whose sister uh, has ended up in a vegetative state due to medical malpractice at a Roman Catholic-run archdiocese hospital in Boston. This is probably one of, I think, Newman's best performances, came later in his career, obviously in the 80s. I mean, not only because he looks so goddamn handsome in his mid-career, mid-life ruggedness, but I think the range he's here in playing here, this complicated relationship he has with Charlotte Rampling, who is her own force in this, and then to see James Mason sort of triangulating this thing. It's just a movie that's populated with finely tuned performances everywhere, and it's all sort of orchestrated by Sidney Lumet, who's one of the great directors of that 70s, 80s period. So can't recommend it highly enough. Michael, what is the word of the day? I don't know. Was I supposed to come with one? No, but after listening to you talk about this film, it occurs to me, we have used the word complicated about 600 times in this episode. Really? Ladies and gentlemen, it's a metaphor for life. Should that be on the banned words list? (laughs) Probably. It probably will be by the time we're done with this. Speaking of complication, we have a great lives this week. Tell us more. We do. It's by Joan Juliet Buck, who is a former, an American-born editor of French Vogue. And it's about you know, we lost a couple of people in fashion this week. We lost Albert Abaz of Lanvin. But this is about the death of June Newton, who was the wife of Helmut Newton, the great photographer, often known as the King of Kink. And um, she was, as Joan points out in her uh, sort of remembrance of her, of June. Uh, they were married for 56 years. And, you know, Helmut had this, if you look at his images, he was a, a sexual. He looked at these Amazon Amazonian models um, and uh, they, were, they were dark and there's always a hint of sexuality to them. But across this 56-year marriage where they met when they were in Melbourne, when he had sort of recently been released from a German Jewish refugee camp, they had this incredible partnership and she was the kind of calming, quiet force of the partnership behind the scenes. But she was also a photographer in her own right. She had many, many amazing photographs. And it just was, I think, a reminder that, you know, there are these partnerships that exist in the art world, in the fashion world. And this was one of the great ones. Michael, thank you for that inspiring note. Would you like me to read us out? Oh, I suppose so. The Weekend Awaits. Thank you for joining us. The Weekend Awaits. May Awaits. The May Nymphs Awaits. Things are going to get better. Thank you to our partner for this episode, Veuve Clicquot La Grande Dame. To learn more or purchase La Grande Dame 2012, visit veuveclicquot.com. V-E-U-V-E-C-L-I-C-Q-U-O-T.com. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Emily Davis is our CMO, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Speaking of music, our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly or at Ashley Claire Baker or at Michael underscore Haney. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. But most of all, thanks for joining us.